Recording live from the Engine Room in Broad Ripple, this is the Voices of Indie podcast hosted by Josh Gillespie. Voices of Indie is a show dedicated to giving you the opportunity to know the musical, visual, and theatrical arts of Indianapolis, Indiana. This week's guest is composer and multi-time award winner A. Paul Johnson. Paul's background includes being a Fellowship Award winner with the Kennedy Center, a two-time Pulitzer Prize Award for music nominee, and a recipient of the Fellowship through a National Endowment for the Arts that provided music for programs in the prison systems. He's also been awarded fellowships and grants by the Florida Arts Council, the Indiana Arts Commission, Meet the Composer, and Arts Midwest, as well as many local arts organizations. And today's episode is sponsored by the Indianapolis Independent Entertainment. IIE LLC's goal is to help grow local DIY artists, freelancers, and businesses within Indianapolis and generate more paying creative opportunities. Their mission is simple, to establish a network of creatives who excel in areas of need and connecting them with other network members. This way, they can help to expand the local art and music scenes. IIE believes that by eliminating some of the intimidating barriers within the entertainment industry, more opportunities will be produced for local freelancers and businesses. This will help Indianapolis become the place to go for art and music in the Midwest. If you're interested in learning more, go to their website, www.indieindieent.com. That's I-N-D-Y-I-N-D-I-E-E-N-T.com and fill out a free application to discuss how you and IIE can redefine making it together. Mr. Johnson, Paul, Paul if I may. I, actually, I got the nickname A. Paul uh-huh. because I was doing a show in Florida, and there were like four Pauls. We found out there was a B. Paul and a C. Paul, and actually, I, I think it was a D. Paul. I think it was A. B. C. Wow. So the A. Paul helped us identify each other, and sure. it sort of stuck. Uh, and the reason I had the A Paul to to begin with, I used to just go by Paul, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, when I joined BMI. I joined BMI, which is broadcast music, mm-hmm. uh, as a composer, back when it was all analog, and you could not have the same name as another composer. So oh. if I just use Paul Johnson, there's another Paul Johnson out there. Sure. So uh, get the, your name to the top of the list. You go A. Yeah. So I, you know. Picked the first letter off the front of the alphabet, stuck it on there, and I got my BMI count. I just wanted my royalties. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's a great story. I love it. Yeah, and then and then I was just playing Paul, and like I say, until I did that show, and then mm-hmm. everybody, was, oh, it's D Paul, oh, it's A Paul, oh, it's B Paul, and you know. Well, now we got stuff. A. Well, That's I'm glad good. we have A Paul, the A Paul Johnson. Well, the the, the I know you mentioned, uh, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a recluse and quiet a lot of the time, and you you said you hadn't you know heard much about my work prior to this. Uh, and that used to always be my joke. I'm A. Paul Johnson temporarily until the name really gets big, and then I become the Paul Johnson. <laughs> That's true. So you're right right on track. I am <laughs> right on track then, yes. Uh, so you've already started here a bit. Give me a little bit of background. Um, tell me about yourself. You're originally from Indianapolis. I grew up in Indianapolis, down around Brookside Park. And uh, when I got ready to go to high school, I got a scholarship to Burbuff to be uh, their musician. I accompanied the choirs and, you know, played for the chapel services and uh, had a just a wonderful time. Learned, you know, a lot about music by being thrown into the pit and, you know, being able to play. And, of course, that was a great education. It's a marvelous school and, and met a lot of people, uh, including at the time Tom Bricetti. And Tom Bricetti, back then, we're talking about the 70s, you know, disco time. Uh, Bricetti was the associate conductor of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And so he would invite me down to listen to those rehearsals. He said, if you're going to write, you know, because I write symphonies, you know, big yeah. concert pieces. 
you need to have all those sounds in your head. And so he was great about that and, and just a marvelous teacher. Opened up a lot of repertoire to me and uh, uh, and contacts. You know, he referred me to some other wonderful composers who as soon as I said Bricetti, the conversation was open because he was he was so well-respected in the music world. And uh, when I was first here, uh, Heron School of Art, when it used to be on mm -hmm. 16th Street, had a performing arts program, and I worked there for a little while and did some shows for Indiana Repertory Theater as both music director and composer, mm -hmm. and uh, did that for, oh, maybe two years, sort of the end of high school, right out of high school, and uh, then got involved with the regional theater circuit from contacts I'd made at IRT. Mm hmm and started traveling, and after being tired of living out of a suitcase for a couple of years, I landed in Florida and spent close to 40 years in Florida. Wow. So I just am back fairly recently to retire here because it's my home. You know, go back, the eternal return. That's true. You know, back, to, yes. back to your roots. And so it's been nice being back in Indianapolis for the last few years. Well, you haven't really exactly stayed retired, though. You're continuing to do a lot of work, aren't you? I, yeah, I, I don't know how that happened. Uh, as we were talking earlier, uh, I, I think the shutdown, because it forced me to retire, you know, there was mm -hmm. nothing going on, particularly for performing. I did a lot of writing during that time. Mm -hmm. But uh, I didn't like being told by, you know, little little buggy things or microbes that I could not go out and play sure. if I didn't want to. <laughs> So as soon as the uh, you know shutdown started to lift, and you know the, uh, I am uh, I guess what they'd call an ask at risk age, so I was you know careful coming out. But mm -hmm. uh, you know once I got back into the system, yeah, people were so hungry to get back singing and dancing and on stage oh, and yeah. playing programs that it was like whoosh whoosh whoosh. I was you know back working actually close to full time now. That's incredible. So. so give me a little bit of insight into composing. I mean, I'm a musician. I've had a number of musicians on the show. Um, I like kind of getting into their head a bit about, about what inspires them, what gets them to, um, whether it's the inspired to perform or the inspired to what is, in, you know, inspiring them to write. Um, I have to imagine that writing a symphony is far more arduous than sitting down and writing a four to five minute song, you know, um, I, I think back to, to when I saw Amadeus as a kid mm -hmm. and just the pages and pages and pages. And granted that was, you know, I have to imagine still you're doing a lot of that by hand. I still write everything by longhand with ink pens. Wow. Dip pens or cartridge pens. Wow. I, I've had some of the modern computer and they just they slow me down so much. It's interesting you say that. Of all the first questions to come out, because I just uh, uh, gave a little bit of this program last week here in town, and then I'm going up to Lafayette tomorrow to give another little piece of it. But that question, I you know, most musicians they like to think they're mysterious in their creative processes. So, like most composers and songwriters. You know, what does your inspiration come from? They would oh, sort of blow it off and, mm -hmm. you know, oh, well, I was in love and then they broke my heart and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> sure. And that can be part of it, but uh, it's also a discipline. 
And as I mentioned again earlier, as we were ta- talking, I wrote a lot on commission. Mm-hmm. So you know, you've got seventy musicians waiting to have those parts on their stands, and uh, particularly if it's a union orchestra. I mean, even if it's not, uh, it's it's got to be there on time, or they won't play it. Yeah. So you had to learn some discipline, you know, to to get things on track, and you couldn't wait for inspiration. It's nice when it came, but sure. if it didn't come, then you had to rely on the technique.
But about 30 years ago, I was in Ocala, Florida, and I was their pit conductor. We were we heard uh, some songs from Evita on the radio coming over here, and uh, I think I was conducting Evita when this uh, uh, occurred to me to do this. Uh, but uh, the symphony down there was also premiering an overture of mine that was a commission piece from the horse industry. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, an overture on Pegasus. They wanted a horse theme. And a lot of the people from the theater who did not know I was a composer went out of curiosity. And, of course, their first question, because it was I a mean, big concert overture for, a, yeah. a, I think, about a 65-piece orchestra. And the first question is, you know, where do you get your inspiration? So I actually started this little workshop, this little creativity workshop that uh, both from research and practice I put together to help people understand how I go through that process and where I find uh, not only uh, that mix between discipline and inspiration, but how to find the right collaborators, how to learn to work with, if you're going to work with a lyricist, if you're going to work with a book writer, if it's a theater piece... Uh, you know, if if you do get writer's block, you know how to break that open, how to use humor, how to understand how your brain works, how the little impulses in those those dendrites, mm-hmm. you know, exchange information so that if you get the same thing going over and over, you've got to have a way to uh, break out of it. Yes. So that became part of my work, too. And... Uh, sharing that process and boy that has been great fun because people call me or write me or of course now it's all email mm-hmm. uh, about projects that they've not been able to get off the ground that now seem to be fluid for them and a lot of it is dreaming you know dreaming letting your mind open to those creative realms that are infinite it's, it's, it, I mean, we live in an infinite universe. Mm-hmm. And if you can learn to open that door, you can get anything you want, starting to stream through it. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, pick out. I always say that particularly a, a great piece of music is that perfect balance between content and intent. Mm-hmm. It's not only what you put into it as far as musical materials, but it's why you're writing. You know, if you're writing to... Uh, deepen someone's connection to life, to uh, open that, help open that door to other people, to that infinite uh, source of inspiration. If you're writing out of love, if you're writing because the collaborator, collaborators you're writing for, the musicians you're writing for, are your dearest friends in the world, and you just want their success more than yours, those th- that intent guides the piece as much as the content, and and it should. So pieces that may not be perfectly constructed still have this magic about them because of why you wrote it. I love this talking about the why. Yeah, it's not touched on too often, is it? No, no, it isn't. Um, There is an artist that uh, who I kind of keep in touch with that he talks about um, and he's more of your, your typical singer-songwriter kind mm-hmm. of musician, um, that he writes his why is because he wants music that um, that he can relate to because he's in a period of life where he's not going to find a lot of things that 
touch on where he is, but he knows that there are probably other people out there feeling the same way he is. Mm-hmm. And so he writes, as he says, autobiographically. And that uh, that is his wise, because he's he's providing basically his own soundtrack. And that's how he encourages other people when they when they write is you know to write write what you know write your soundtrack um but i like the i like your why because your why is also so it can be so broad yes uh, uh, a lot of people listen to my music and i think this has been why commercially uh i you know i have been uh, problematic to everybody i've you know managers and publishers and i'm on my third publisher now uh because my music doesn't sound the same i know uh oh there was a i had a manager in florida for a while when we had our production company who got us on some of those uh streaming outfits Mm -hmm. and and of course the first thing that comes comes through is my music sounds like yes you know and you're supposed to list three people your music sounds like well, it depends on what piece you're listening to. Most of my music, people will listen to it, and they'll have absolutely no idea unless the composer is announced. It's the same person that wrote the piece that they maybe heard three days before. Sure. I I don't necessarily personally get involved with my writing that much. Hmm. Again, it's opening that door. It's looking at who's performing it. It's looking at who the audience is. It's looking at, you know, what the call is, mm-hmm. 50th anniversary, you know, Indianapolis Philharmonic, and that's the call. What is going to be important about that situation that I can create, you know, a dramatic interface with? Mm-hmm. So that might not, it might be me, it might not be me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh my partner Cheryl's out there and we were listening to some of my pieces the other night and uh, she was listening to a piece of mine called Hello Dali. It's a ballet Mm -hmm. I wrote for the Florida uh, Dance uh, Festival and uh, was commissioned by the Salvador Dali Museum, which if you've ever seen is a wild place. Uh And even though I took the inspiration for the pieces by sitting, they opened the museum up to me and I got to sit you know, just alone in front of these 11 Dali paintings. And I did some automatic writing to give me a... But the first thing out of her her mouth when she heard it is, she said, that's you personally. Hmm. She I, heard you in the she music. Heard, she heard me personally in the music. Uh, I think stronger in that piece than anything else I'd written. And I thought that was really odd because I did not think I was personally involved with it. But it was uh, automatic writing. It was a 45-minute ballet that I wrote in 48 hours. What? Yes. I mean, it was one of those... I go into uh, a kind of trance state when I write. I was going to say, that had to be some sort of trance state. Yeah, it was a trance state. And I just went... I just, you know, I just was writing and writing and writing. And it was a combination of writing it down and working at the keyboard a little bit and writing it down and working at the keyboard... It scored for five keyboards and ring modulator and voice, and of course a lot of very bizarre surrealistic sounds. But it sounded in my head uh, through the first time so abs- absolutely clearly. It, it took almost no editing, which is for a big piece yeah. un- unusual. 
And I still like the piece. I mean, it's it's very, very quirky. And that piece has never been performed. Of course, the dancers have a lot to do with it. It has never been performed in a house that was not sold out. Wow. That is incredible. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, again, one of those universes talking to me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you let it in and you let it go through and and maybe that's who I am. I'm vacant without that door open. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, people who, you know, have, have complimented that, that score very highly. So, um, yeah, that's that's the process I, I use a lot. I'm working on a new opera now. Oh, really? Um, yes, yeah, so you actually mentioned to me yeah. uh, when we were chatting over email uh, that you were working on a few arias. Well, I finished... I just finished an opera in uh, 2018, and uh, my publisher, who's here in Indianapolis, I'm with Performers Edition now, which is which is here in Indianapolis, which is nice because we can talk and I can get things quickly. And and he's kind of helping me understand what my legacy catalog should look like. Sure, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm an old fart, you know. So <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, so we just if I just finished that opera. Uh, it's not even com- been completed. The orchestration's not even been completed. But um, uh, Mark, uh, my publisher, said, you know, we need, in order to market this, I need some arias recorded. So uh, I orchestrated a few arias, and we got them uh, out and got a few some people listening to them, some great singers. Uh, the one tenor aria is actually sung by Kirk McLeod. And if anybody here is a Celtic rocker and knows Seven Nations, mm-hmm. he's the lead singer for Seven Nations. Yes. So to hear him singing opera is, I think, worth it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway.
So we were just starting to get some feedback on it, a few nibbles, including an opera company in Poland, and uh, the shutdown, you know, COVID-19 oh, came through. Yes. And so that stopped progress on that, mm-hmm. and we haven't really started it up again. But during the shutdown, I started a new opera. I had so much fun. And, and I, don't know, I don't know if we should talk about what that, that first opera was about or not. Well, let's go right ahead. I mean, if you feel... scarier. No, it's... it's <laughs> I, 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 let's let's do it. Let's let's this dive story, right in. This, let's this let's what's story, the story? This story. It's it's called Love Ted, mm-hmm. and that's how Ted Bundy signed his letters to uh, Anne. You wrote an opera about Ted Bundy. Yeah. Um, uh, not Anne Rice. Anne, his true crime writing friend. Her name escapes me right now. We actually had some correspondence. She just mm-hmm. didn't want Ted Bundy dancing across the stage in tights. She says that was the only <laughs> thing she didn't. Miss. Didn't want to see from the uh, the piece, but she was a great mystery writer and mm-hmm. uh, trying to get background. What what started it was my uh, ex wife. I've been married quite a few times. I love I love being married. That's why I keep doing it over and over and over. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, she awoke with a nightmare one night, just mm-hmm. screaming and shivering and flailing and pounding the bed and gasping for air and oh my and scared me scared me i'd never seen a nightmare like that and i asked her what it was and she said ted bundy was sitting on top of me trying to strangle me oh my goodness and she could not get that image out of her head can imagine not uh you know i said just in passing you know maybe you need to write this down or do you know like a diary entry about it you need to do something to flush it out of your system because it was really bothering her 
And she said, well, what if I do a libretto for a show? Would you do the music for it? Because she'd done a lot of my lyrics. We were clever. Oh, my. Okay. And... Um, that's how she was processing this? That's how she was processing it. And I, you know. Like right there on the spot? Well, it might be a couple of days after. Okay, okay. So, you know, I'm grimacing and thinking, really? Ted Bundy? And then I thought, well, you know, there's some really bloody operas out there. There are. You know, I, I was in the chorus of a Lucia de Lamamore years ago, uh, back when I had the temerity to sing. Um, but, you know, the whole last 20 minutes, she's covered in a bloody nightgown, singing some of the most beautiful music in the world. So I, you know, said, okay, let's try it. And she started it two or three times and couldn't do it. Bought every book and been published on Ted Bundy. We watched all the movies back when Mark Harmon, you know, got oh, yeah. kind of blacklisted back in those days from for uh, portraying such a dastardly character. And I was worried, as a composer, I would be late. late sure, enough. yeah, no, I can understand that. For writing such a horrible, uh, horrible piece. So on and off, we tried it. We went out to Seattle and walked all the places where Bundy hung out, ate at the restaurants where he ate. Wow. Walked by the houses and went out to Lake Sammamish. You know, I mean, we really tried to see if we could get into this, and I just couldn't do it. Hmm. Just thought it was ridiculous. So, uh, actually, after I had come back here to Indianapolis, I uh, was having dinner with some singing friends. Uh, at, at, at that time, I was at a house down on South Meridian, an old house, and it was very conducive to talking about opera and music and all that. And, and I touched on this story. And everyone at the table said, oh, you've got to write that opera. Mm -hmm. You've got to write that opera. There's just something's got to happen with it. And again, I said, oh, no, that's too too dastardly. About a week later, I dreamed the whole thing. Dreamed it from beginning to end, just kind of like I did with, with uh, me. Hello, Dali. All the arias, the, the way it was set up, how it was structured to present the women and composite the women. Um, and... Uh, and then over the course of, now that one didn't happen overnight. I mean, it took me, I don't know, maybe three, four months. Sure, but you, you had a vision for it. Score. But yeah, every every note of it was there. And uh, a friend of mine, Paul Nicely, a well-known director, stage director here in town, he loved it so much that he he recorded some of Bundy's songs. Really? Uh, yeah, for me. Uh that did not get fully orchestrated. It was just me at the piano and mm -hmm. doing that. So uh, we haven't distributed those yet because we've been trying to get the orchestrated ones out. But that's that's how that's how it happened. It just what, what's the name of it? It's called Love Ted. Oh, that's right. Yes, you mentioned that. And, yes, I'm sorry. and that's and I'm talking about a 20 year process. There. Yeah, from that first nightmare to when I put the the final notes on the piano score was about 20 years. Wow. And I fought it, and I fought it, and I fought it that whole time. And it's like, I don't know, Bundy must have had one of his hands on my neck because he was not letting me go until that opera was finished. Wow. Yeah, so... And so is this... Uh, forgive me if I've, I, I seem to have glossed over something, but I mean, is this something that, that has it been performed yet or is this in the process of not fully, not no. full. Okay. Just some of the, some this of the, this is songs. what you're teasing out the yeah, arias from what, this. Okay. Yeah, some of the, the, 
songs and arias mm-hmm. uh, have been performed and recital, mostly in South America. I work with uh, several groups in Argentina that mm-hmm. kind of became fans of my music, so they were they were all recorded in Argentina. So what is when you have another culture like that being mm-hmm. exposed to uh, what was a, a true fascination character um, through? I mean, through the press, through the, the mm-hmm. just the all the gory details. What's that like? I mean, what's their response to something like that? Here's, especially since it's a true story. Here's what I've found, though, that, uh, and this may be politically too correct, or or so politically correct that it's incorrect. You know, everything exists with its opposite. Sure, but we have been obsessed for the last 400 years with the age of reason and that the material world is something we can depend on and we know how it works. Mm -hmm. I think what the latter part of the 20th, well, really almost all of the 20th century has taught us is that the material world does not work the way we thought it did. And coming in underneath that through that time is this quantum world. And if you use a cell phone or you watch TV or, you know, use the equipment, beautiful equipment that you're using here, it's all run on quantum mechanics. The, mecha- the, the mechanical world of Newton could not provide this, this setting for us. So whether you like it or not, it's here. Mm-hmm. And it's guiding us. And what the quantum world basically says is at the highest level... Uh, the broadest level of universal nothingness is the only place where nothing changes. That's sort of what Mm -hmm. we think of as the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. And then underneath that, supporting it, is the emotional world where the arts have their language. And the emotional world doesn't change much. Music is such a precise language. It's such a precise mathematical language. That's why I ask if you had a piano here, because I usually demonstrate this when I talk about it. Mm-hmm. I can make you feel any way I want you to feel. By the way I move through harmonic changes and rhythmic changes, I can change your energy. You know that when you've gone to a concert. That's why we go to a concert, so we're feeling everything the same as everybody else around us, and we're all either dancing or we're, we're singing or we're swaying or something mm-hmm. like that, and that... Joining us together is uh, so healthy and necessary, so we don't feel separated out. We don't feel isolated as as a human being. And then the intellectual world comes in under that. And you know that the emotional world's more powerful than the intellectual world, because if you've ever been upset, you can't think straight. <laughs> That's true. You know, that is absolutely true. The emotional world beat the crap out of your intellect. I don't care how smart you are. If mm-hmm. you're emotionally distraught or emotionally elated. I mean, you know, like I say, I've gone through that with a lot of wives where I've been emotionally elated. It's like my reason went out the window. Sure. So, um, and then the material world sits down at the very bottom, and it's the one that changes the most. You know, we don't drive the same kind of cars. We don't eat the same kind of food. We don't uh, interact with the physical world. Uh, we don't even drink tap water anymore. We're going to have something out of a bottle. I mean, all those things have changed. All those processes have changed. And the material things that we depend on have changed. Same with the intellectual world. You know, now if it doesn't come in one of these boxes or on your phone or on a computer, we don't even deal with it. Some There are people out there who don't even believe the intellectual world exists without those machines. So... 
Yeah, those worlds are going to constantly change. And we can uh, creatively uh, move them around and manipulate them very easily. But the emotional one, that's why art, you can look at a piece of art from a thousand years ago and it will move you. Uh-huh. But try driving a, a car from a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah. And if you forgot your horse, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. So we can depend on that. And then we can depend on, like I say, those doors that open to that universe, that cosmic consciousness to tell us the things that are important that we remember over time, over lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, and to express those as part of art too. And that's where art goes from being popular art to being great art. That's where Beethoven's Ninth Symphony comes from. That's where Guernica comes from. That's where uh, Dr. Zhivago comes from. You know, those pieces will be with us to remind us along the way who we are. And whereas yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy, may not make that journey. (laughs) (laughs) I, I often think about what is it that causes a piece of music or a piece of art to have this kind of lasting impact. You've got to get it from the cosmic consciousness. You've, you've mm-hmm. got to, if you think it's going to come to you personally, uh, I think you're missing a, 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 an important piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. You've got to move yourself out of the way just a little bit. It's kind of like an actor. I love actors. I love working in the theater. Because they basically empty themselves out and put a new character in there. And you know what? Sometimes I don't even recognize them. Actors I've known for decades. Mm-hmm. Because they are so thorough about that. And boy, what a discipline. What a, what a way to turn your entire being, your body, your mind, your emotions into a work of art right there in, in front of us. Musicians have that ability too. I do a lot of vocal coaching and, and I say, you know, you've got to give yourself up and sing the song. It's the song that is calling us from that other realm. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily you. Mm -hmm. And if you can move yourself out of the way and let that song come through. I mean, I've seen particularly singers do that for the first time. And I mean, just goosebumps. I mean, it's it's like little sparks are flying off of them for the first time. And they go, what just happened to me? Yeah. And I said, you opened that door <laughs> and something came through you that is truly miraculous. And now you got to go out, you got to learn to do that all the time and go out and share it with an audience. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the trick to, I think, any art form is, is you know, to learn to open that, that little door, even if it's a pinprick. If you get a pinprick, things start coming through there that just are marvelous and and you start to recognize them in great works of art you know mm-hmm. I, I love to play Bach I, I'm kind of a Bach nut and because Bach for some reason over a thousand compositions managed to do it <laughs> just like every time mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like what an amazing guy and and he wasn't a super intellectual I mean it, he just said it all came you know came he wrote, you know, uh, Ad Gloria, uh, was it Ad Deum God Gloria? Or, you know, it's all done for the glory of God. He just thought mm-hmm. it was, you know, the spirit world opening up to him. And, uh, you know, he wrote so quickly, he couldn't have been thinking about it. So Talk about being in that trance. Yeah. So we listen to a work of Bach, and we say this is, you know, a work of, of 
marvelous genius mm-hmm. because Bach got out of the way. <laughs> I don't think any of us are actually really geniuses. The genius is out there, mm-hmm. and you've got to get yourself out of the way and let it through. And then, you know, the illusion is, you know, you become the genius. Yes. I For me, it's that getting out of the way. I know that personally, when I'm writing music, Mm-hmm. It is the most difficult thing to get out of yep. my own way. Yep. How do you get out of your own way? Again, I just go. I just go into this kind of trance state, and uh, oddly enough, I know uh, I usually like to work privately. There's been very, very few people who have ever, actually ever seen me working at writing. Cheryl being one, one of the few people on this planet that I feel so comfortable with. I just can work in front of her all the time. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I go into this trance state and I actually usually play other music while I'm working, while I'm composing. Really? Because I think it takes that, I know they say there's really no right brain, left brain per se, but there are parts of your brain that have different functions. And I think listening to other music, particularly Bach, I'll put Mm -hmm. on, you know, Brandenburg concertos or something like that. I think it takes away that identifying part of my left brain, mm-hmm. that objective brain, gets it out of the way, so that the subjective brain can work separately in terms of the writing. And uh, particularly on a big piece like I'm doing now with a full orchestra and a big opera cast, all of that detail work goes in with other music going on, carrying on conversations, uh, you know, sometimes eating, you know. I, mm-hmm. I like a cigar sometimes when I'm oh, sure. uh, working. Um, not too often. That's a bad habit for an old guy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, you've, you've got to have those little rituals mm-hmm. that that take you out of yourself so that that other realm can have its say. And a lot of times, I've finished pieces, like big symphonies, you know, big 80 piece orchestra symphonies and uh, I'll go to the premiere which means sometimes they've even been able to conduct them or been asked to conduct them and I'll hear this piece and the you know crowd goes wild or whatever you know I like to think most of my pieces have landed pretty strongly with uh, the audiences and I walk off the stage and it's like did I write that? <laughs> You know, there's a part of me that doesn't believe I have done what I have done. What are the emotions that are going through you? Like, as you are conducting, I mean, do you, I, let me rephrase this. Mm-hmm. Do you feel those emotions after you've done, after the, the piece is done? Or do you feel them as? During. During. While, they're while you're conducting. Yeah, I, I, again, we, when we were chatting earlier, I just finished conducting Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in town for Footlight. And uh, I was able to come in early and talk to the cast about how I was going to interpret as a conductor, which really helped. And I even came in early to to play some of the rehearsals for them so they could hear how I was interpreting the music because I wanted them to understand the emotional content of that score, which was so complex and so rich and so relentless for three hours. Uh, Very overlapping emotions and tongue-in-cheek emotions and hidden emotions, but they were there Mm -hmm. because music 
reveals that subtext, what you're thinking and feeling inside, not necessarily what you're saying. And we went through that score and talked about where they were at odds and where the characters were letting loose. And then we had a 14-piece orchestra come into the pit, which was hard with that pit. It's not a big pit Mm -hmm. to get those people. And then I went through that same process with the orchestra so that they understood, I mean, moment by moment what was going on emotionally in that score. And it shifts, you know, every beat, every change of note shifts that emotion, and you've got to shift it while you're playing. And if you're not immersed... I mean, from the second violinist to the, you know, young lady standing in the back of the chorus. If you're not connected to that emotion, something's going to be lost. But if you are connected to that emotion, as I mentioned to you before, Mm -hmm. sold out every performance and set records for that theater for attendance and income, which after COVID, they needed. Yeah. Because everyone in that room... Maybe not a hundred percent of the time, but I would say most of the time, was having the same experience as was on the stage and in the pit and in the house. It was all joined together having that same experience, not just visually and orally and intellectually, but on those deep emotional levels, on those spiritual levels. Mm-hmm. That's priceless. That, that is, that's what art's about. That's when high art becomes so powerful that they will. The people who were there, they'll never forget that. The cast wants to do the show again. They can't sure. believe they're not performing it. When you're in a moment like that, do you recognize it? And then, if it was me, if I recognized it, it would paralyze me. You have to have a nervous system that understands that process. And, you know, I've just been blessed with it. I, I don't know. I mean, I have I have played shows on that level when, you know, I have been, you know, ill or uh, exhausted. And, again, you just, you go into that state for it to happen. I, you know, regret to say a few times when I was hungover, you know, hmm. that, and people said, well, I didn't notice anything different about your performance. And they shouldn't. You know, again, I just have the material kind of metabolism that allows me to go in and do that. I've gone over 50 years in performing and I have never missed a scheduled performance of any kind. That's incredible. Yeah, and I mean, knock on years. wood. I'm, you know, <laughs> sure. I'm getting to be, like I say, you know, a little, little long in the tooth to keep bragging on that. Uh, well, for someone who is quote-unquote retired. <laughs> yeah, for, for someone who said I wasn't going to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's just something about my body my physicality that knows when that moment is arising that it 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 transforms itself and allows it to happen and then as soon as the show's over you know i mean i may collapse walking out of the pit or sure you know faint in the dressing room or something like that but during the time of the performance it it knows it has to sustain me through that moment mm-hmm. at least so far well we have covered so much, and yet I feel like we've barely scratched the surface with you. <laughs> okay. Well, volume um, two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I honestly feel like we probably have to do this again. Uh, but I, I ask this of all of my guests because mm-hmm. I, I want to ensure that we cover as much as possible. What have, what have we missed? What have I not asked that you would like to 
to mention. Um, anything that sh- that is coming up that we should know about? Well, uh, I, I'm, a- I'm actually on a, uh, uh, a grant right now with uh, Center for Congregations, mm-hmm. which is Lilly Endowment, uh, their support group for area churches, because churches are struggling to come out of COVID. Mm-hmm. And the marriage between uh, art and faith as a matter of fact, you said, what haven't we covered? And I was almost going to say this before this sidetrack came in, and I'll see if I can tie it back up quickly, uh, is uh, an immensely uh, practical as well as powerful way to reconnect people to uh, you know, their faith journey and, and um, uh, expressing themselves through either traditional or modern you know, religious practice. Uh, ritual is important for us. We all have all kinds of rituals in the theater. You know, you can't even mention the Scottish play backstage. <laughs> so I think the same is true of art. And I think that's why artists are maybe needed in sacred settings right now uh, very strongly is because I don't think you could do this job unless you have faith. you got to believe it. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe it, there's going to be something artificial in your work. You've got to believe it the way, uh, you know, an acolyte nun believes in God. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's got to, you know, just take over your being. And and you've got to, again, allow that to happen, get out of the way. And I think uh, our religious practice has become too Mm me-focused, you know, individual-focused, to allow that to happen, too. So the... The prayers go out from me as an individual to God, but the door never opens back up for God to talk <laughs> back. Sure, in. yeah. I know too much. I'm not going to listen to that, you know. Yeah. So uh, so this fellowship, uh, this grant, uh, or whatever you want to call it, is uh, up for a year. And, uh, and I started working with uh, a couple of churches here in town and uh, have been now for almost a month at uh, one of the uh, historic churches, Trinity Methodist, up in Lafayette, and uh, about, you know, how the arts need to start intertwining. Not only for the art itself, but the kind of people who practice arts need to be in those sacred settings. That's what makes holy ground holy ground, is what goes on in it. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Europe, I used to love to go to, like, Canterbury Cathedral or St. Paul's, uh, or Notre Dame, because those spaces carry so much energy and power. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm uh, doing performance-wise right now. And then uh, in Lafayette, as part of that grant, I'm going to give one of my Bach concerts on, on the grand piano there in the sanctuary. Oh, really? December 11th. And it's called Bach to the Future. <laughs> Because it's half Bach and half my music. Oh, really? Yeah. Fantastic. And where is that going to be performed? Uh, at Trinity United Methodist, which is in the Centennial neighborhood, downtown Lafayette. I think it's 509 North Street. But you can December 11th. Yeah. Call, call Trinity uh, uh, UMC United Methodist Church in Lafayette, and they'll set you up with all the details. As a matter of fact, I just looked at the press release that's going out. They, I just uh, had had a chance to look at that yesterday. 
we'll make sure that they are also linked in the show notes. So that oh, absolutely, yeah, that would that would be great. And and I'm actually they've got a reception room because uh, I'm going to talk about the residency too there mm-hmm. to uh, how the marriage with the arts and the church is coming coming along. So I'll I'll be back in the great room and have a chance to talk to folks about Bach and because you know all our tuning. I mean, even even world folk music now is tuning to Bach. Mm-hmm. Bach was the one who realized this is a natural occurrence. You know, how we tune with the wheel of fifths. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever played an instrument tuned before Bach, <laughs> it sounds weird. It, <laughs> <laughs> that's putting it lightly. Yeah. So, uh, and that's why a lot of that old music was only written in two or three keys because those are the only ones they could get halfway right. to tuning on. Uh, so, so much of our structure, so much of our rhythm, our music theory, it all comes from Bach. He has he has changed our modern world in terms of how we create music, play music, listen to music, respond to music. So, uh, I'll talk be talking about that a little bit too at the you know post concert gathering. That's incredible. So, December eleventh at Trinity United Methodist Church in Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Johnson, thank you so much. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Thanks, Josh. You're welcome. And if you like what you've heard, this has been recorded at the Engine Room Recording Company, and it is located in Broad Ripple Village, just north of downtown Indianapolis, and they specialize in making your projects go. Podcasters, bands, audiobookers, rappers, singers, songwriters, and everyone in between, the Engine Room Recording Company has the engineers, the equipment, and the environment to fuel your projects. Check out Broad Ripple's recording studio by visiting for more information on their services, artists they've recorded, and gear they have at EngineRoomRecordingCompany.com. And be sure to visit their Instagram page by searching Engine Room at Engine Room Recording Company. Paul, um, this has been an absolute pleasure, and I do hope to have you on again. Um, because like I said, I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. With and you. I hope we have it here because, you know, I'm listening to you read, read the promo. This is a marvelous space. The energy and the feel of the space is just great. It is. And next time we so. should, we will try to get you a piano. Um, but cause I would love to hear what you would. Sure. Yeah. I like to like to play as part of the, yeah. Uh, so that is going to do it for us. Okay. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, I've been Josh Gillespie. This has been Voices of Indy. And be sure to turn in, tune in next time. Uh, we'll be having our live stream. And this is going to be a fun one. So stick around. We'll see you guys later. <laughs> Bye. All right.